Welcome to the Eric Erickson Show podcast, Hour One. Hello, America. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. It's an open line Friday. The phone number 877-973-7425. If you want to be on the program, we've got to get right to the news because it's happening right now. Uh, Right now at this moment, a company you never even heard of probably until this morning is being taken over by the FDIC put into receivership. It's called Silicon Valley Bank. It's having spillover effects across Wall Street. The Dow down, NASDAQ down, SP 500 down, all, all the major indices down, bank stocks hit hard. Uh, this should not terrify people. It's been thought of as a bank run. I have dug into this. I've talked to the experts. Uh, let me explain what's happening here. And this will probably make sense to you. I hope it does. And feel free to call it if you have any questions. Silicon Valley Bank was the home of major tech startups. Uh, You'll be familiar with some of the businesses it helped fund. Beyond Meat, Impossible Foods, Bloom Energy, Solar City, Sunrun. It invested in and helped finance a lot of bad tech startups that have had financial troubles. I mean, the Beyond Meat, for example, is is in all sorts of financial turmoil right now. Silicon Valley Bank bought a lot of bonds and held on to a lot of bonds in the private sector. If you go back in time to the financial crisis of 2008-2009, the problem a lot of banks and investment companies had is they their portfolio of assets was largely in mortgage-backed securities. When the housing market collapsed and people stopped paying their mortgages and and people went under and they had used all sorts of computer algorithmic models to decide which mortgages to invest in and they didn't pan out. Well, the whole thing collapsed as a house of cards. Most banks now have uh, fixed this by buying into treasuries that are guaranteed by the U.S. government. So the return is not very good, but they're also not going to fail. Silicon Valley Bank did banking with a mass array of technology firms in Silicon Valley, helped them get their financing, held their bank accounts, and bought their bonds. Now we're in this weird situation. We're in a situation a a former governor of the Federal Reserve tells me is actually a return to normalcy. In fact, if you talk to people in finance, what they tell you is that uh, suddenly the old rules apply again. The rules they learned in uh, business school and in finance and in economics. Now, what does that mean? Well, we went through a period in this country for about a decade where interest rates were next to nothing, pretty much going to zero. Where they are right now is where they have historically been. The 4 to 5% mark, up to 6%, it, that's normal. That's, that's how we're supposed to operate. The problem is that we went for so long from about 2008, 2009 to now with historically low interest rates. And that low interest rate time coincided with the rise of major technology companies. And because the cost of money was so low, these companies could prioritize growth at the expense of profitability. You didn't need to make a profit. You're a fintech company, you're you're a, a DoorDash, you're an Uber, you're a tech startup. You didn't need to make a profit. 
They were getting so much money in the stock market on their investments. The cost of borrowing money was so low, they were still making money and able to pay their bills without ever worrying about turning a profit. But as interest rates have returned to normal as they've gone up, the cost of business has gone up for these companies. A lot of them in their structuring, their loans were variable and they couldn't get fixed rates. Some of them did get fixed rates, but they were also making money off the stock market. As interest rates have gone up, the stock market's entered a bear market. They're not able to make money. And a lot of these companies had bonds and might be missing bond payments. And who invested in a lot of those bonds? Silicon Valley Bank. It was so heavily tied to the tech sector. Now that the tech sector is not making the money it once was and is suddenly having to turn a profit in many of these companies, it turns out can't. Silicon Valley Bank was left holding the bank accounts and the bonds of companies that don't have any revenue. It has collapsed now and has been placed into receivership with the FDIC. Here's an amazing stat for you. North of 93% of the bank's $161 billion with a B in deposits are uninsured. Which means now that they're into receivership, a lot of companies aren't going to be able to get their money out or will only get their money at a prorated rate. A friend of mine is involved in this sector and he was telling me about a company he, he is familiar with that used two banks, Silicon Valley Bank and another bank. That other bank, well, it had its trading halted this morning too. All of this goes back to a different company from a few days ago. And that company was started to collapse because of its crypto burden. Regulators are beginning to regulate crypto. Crypto is not returning the rate that people thought they were. Uh, And so this other bank began to collapse. Well, that started looking and, and people started noticing something was going on with Silicon Valley Bank, which sent out a notice. Now the question is, where else does the fall happen? What other banks close? First Republic is another bank tech companies have used. Its its shares nosedive, but it's come out with a statement saying it actually has a diversified portfolio. So what's actually going on here? How big will this spill over? Let's walk through this. A lot of the major banks out there, JP Morgan Chase, um, uh, Citi, Bank of America, Wells Fargo. I'm trying to think of who else out there. These banks are massive banks. They're national associations. Have you ever looked at your uh, check? Let's say you have Wells Fargo or Bank of America. You see NA after it. That's instead of LLC or Inc. NA, that's a national association. It's a financial group chartered under the United States. Uh, Special rules apply, and they are too big to fail, according to the federal government. As a result, they can't buy out Silicon Valley Bank. They can't buy it out. They can't buy it out because... The federal government doesn't want turmoil on their balance sheets. They don't want financial instability at the top top level. Uh, J.B. Morgan Chase is telling people that it's actually contrary to Silicon Valley Bank that was buying a lot of bonds and tech companies. J.B. Morgan Chase, uh, Jamie Dimon is forcing his bank 
to load up on treasuries and cash. The cash reserves at that bank are so massive now, it could probably stroke a check and write uh, a check to buy Silicon Valley Bank, and it wants nothing to do with it. It's focused on cash reserves, thinking we're headed into a recession. It wants as much cash as possible. And the problem here with these smaller banks is they don't have as much cash, and they decided to try to get ahead to try to grow their portfolio instead of buying risky or unrisky U.S. treasuries that don't pay a lot. They bought riskier bonds and stocks to diversify their portfolio, and some of them are crashing as the economy slows down. Smaller regional banks are having this problem that national banks aren't because smaller regional banks are less diversified than the national banks. The smaller regional banks that are involved in tech are worse off than the smaller regional banks that are involved in real estate. The smaller regional banks that are involved in tech that are diversified outside of tech are doing better than the ones that are solely focused on tech. So there's a scale here. The ones that are going to be the worst hit, probably the ones you're least familiar with, are the banks that are solely involved in tech, have been funding tech, rely on tech, companies, and they're the ones that are going to be in trouble. They're the ones we're seeing in the stock market today that are having trouble. The ones that are more diversified into real estate and other issues, they're going to be less turmoil for those banks. And then the when you work up the scale to the bigger and the bigger and the bigger ones, you have less and less trouble till you get to the, the cities, city banks and the chases of the world that are so heavily invested in cash. They have massive cash reserves. There's going to be a lot of stability there. The problem now is the spillover effect for Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, 93% of its of the money in it was uninsured. So how do we deal with this? There will be some who want a federal government bailout of this. That should not happen. One of the reasons Silicon Valley Bank and others are in the problems and the turmoil they're in is something called moral hazard. When the government keeps bailing these banks out who have done these sorts of things, not diversifying their positions, it reiterates to the markets and to the investment economy that if they do these risky bets, the government will always step in to bail them out. When the government steps in to bail out a bank like this, it creates this moral hazard of these companies re-engaging in the same behaviors that got them into trouble in the first place, knowing the federal government is going to take care of them. That's why the federal government has to let these banks die. That's why the FDIC receivership needs to work the process and get as much out of this bank as possible. Now, there are some investors right now, as I'm talking, word is coming out, some major financial investors in Silicon Valley are looking to try to bail out Silicon Valley Bank because it does have $100 billion in the bank. That's in deposits. That's other people's money that Silicon Valley Bank is holding. They don't want that to be wiped out. If private sector individuals and companies want to do the bailout, let them. That's different from the federal government doing it. The bottom line here is earlier this week, as several Silicon Valley banks, not just the one called Silicon Valley Bank, began to collapse because Tech companies aren't profitable right now with high interest rates, and they're starting to signal they might miss bond payments, and crypto markets aren't on the rise, they're on the decline, and government regulation is coming. There was a real worry that your local bank was going to have trouble too. As we get to the end of the week, the silver lining here is it looks like some of these banks over leverage in technology are going to collapse 
regional banks, small banks, the banks that have a specific niche or niche, as the elites say, they're going to have problems. Your local bank that's involved in local real estate deals, local businesses that you have a banking relationship with, they're probably going to be okay. And if you've got the big players, if you've got the Bank of America's, the Wells Fargo's, the Chase's, the Cities, they're really going to be okay because they have cash liquidity. It's kind of funny. I was talking to uh, a friend of mine yesterday and was lamenting I don't have a relationship with a banker. I would love to find a small bank with a banker that I can do business with. But you do have to be careful here now. Because some of the small banks, if they're not diversified enough, if they're too heavily involved in technology, they're going to have trouble. There are a lot of small regional banks that are heavily invested in real estate. They're going to be fine. This is the biggest story today. And I suspect most conservative talk show hosts out of the gate are talking about uh, the Tucker Carlson tapes or something else. But this is the big story of the day. Silicon Valley Bank held hundreds of billions of dollars for tech startups across America, and it is now in federal receivership because it didn't diversify outside of technology. The larger issue here is the tech sector. Facebook meta laying people off, Amazon laying people off, Google laying people off. The only one that's not laying anybody off is Apple because it it is very restrictive in how it hires. The big tech companies are going wobbly, and if the big tech companies on the surface are wobbling, the smaller tech companies under the surface are really discombobulated. And that's spilling over into this portion of the banking sector. It's a portion of the banking sector that you at least need to be mindful of is out there. You're going to hear a lot of news about this. The one thing I don't want you to do is my initial reaction was doom and gloom and, oh, my gosh, we're going to have a run on banks. That does not appear to be the case as we're here at the end of this week. It doesn't appear to be the case. This appears to be solely restricted to small regional banks heavily focused in technology. If that describes your bank, you may want to reach out to them. Most people, however, it's not. The fear factor that Wall Street was expecting and the cascading spillover effects Wall Street was expecting don't appear they're going to be happening because it's very unique to these four or five banks heavily focused in technology and not the rest of the sector, at least for now. Well, the jobs market is hot. That is good and that is bad. And uh, Wall Street and financiers aren't sure what to make of it. Here's what's going on. Uh, The payroll is up uh, 311,000 in February. More people were hired. There was the private ADP survey um, it was lower than the actual number. So more people hired than expected, which is a surprise. Uh, hourly earnings climbed only 4.6%, which is good. It means wages are going up, but less than expected, which Wall Street wanted to see. If they, if wages went up too much, that would contribute more to inflation because wages went up, but not as much as expected. They think that means inflation is coming down, so they're happy. There's one other tidbit in the jobs report. The unemployment rate has increased from the 40-year low, or no, it was a 50-year low, up to 3.6%. That you got to follow along with me here. The unemployment rate jumping to 3.6% is actually a good thing, not a bad thing, because it doesn't mean there was a mass unemployment outside of the tech sector. There was in the tech sector. 
What it actually is is people starting to look for work again who've been sitting on the sidelines. One of the problems in our economy is a lot of people just dropped out of the workforce altogether. They dropped out, gave up, decided to retire or, or uh, live off of savings, and now they're coming back into the workforce looking for jobs. When you leave the workforce altogether, you no longer count in terms of unemployment. When you start looking for a job, you count for unemployment. And because so many people have come back in at the same time starting to look for work, the unemployment number's gone up. That's a good sign for the economy. It means people are getting off the sidelines and coming back in. There is a labor shortage in the country, and this suggests it's taking care of it. And the fact when you couple that with wages are not going up as much as expected, it means employers are no longer having to offer the massive lavish bonuses and pay packages to induce people to come back to work. My suspicion, and I am no expert, but my suspicion is the inflationary costs in the economy have finally gotten to people who've decided that they can't burn up their savings. They got to go back to work. That's not necessarily a bad thing because it helps us with our labor shortage without having to rely on immigrant substitution, a lot of native U.S. citizens going back into the workforce. However, here's the problem. Wall Street doesn't know how to interpret what the Fed will do. And the prevailing consensus is still the Federal Reserve is going to jack interest rates up at least a half a percentage point, 500 basis points. And um, that's going no, what, to what is it, 50 basis points. And that's going to be a real problem. If you go up half a percent uh, in interest rates, you're putting interest rates back at uh, anomalous highs for the last decade, even though it's normal historically. And that'll cause some de- more instability in the tech sector. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. I want to say thank you real quick out of the gate. Uh, the just uh, kind of been flooded with emails from bankers and lawyers all listening, uh, thanking me for covering. Uh, uh, so, you know, I'm not an expert on this stuff, but I do know enough of, of the experts to call and talk to. And occasionally I get an email from people asking, well, why don't you just have the, the, the bankers on or whatnot? Well, everybody's got a little bit of an expertise. Number one, no, in particular, no one person, can answer all the questions. And so I just talk to a lot of people and try to synthesize it for you. And here's the other dirty little secret. And this, I'll move on, but let me just say this before I do. This is our show, you and me. I don't like to have other people come on the program because then I feel like I'm putting you in the position of eavesdropping on my conversation with someone else. I would rather go talk to those people synthesize, comprehend and synthesize what all of them are saying and then convey all of that to you. And you can call me if you got questions and I'll do my best to answer the questions. But I I just feel like having a bunch of other people come on the show all the time is a interruption of the conversation you and I are having. Um, If you want to call in, particularly today, it's open line Friday, 877-973-7425. It's just, that's one thing, not, not to name drop Rush here, but it was one thing that he really emphasized to me as, as part of the thought process and how he did his show is that he was having a conversation with you and he didn't want to have a lot of guests on because it was an intimate relationship between Rush and you and having an interloper into the conversation he didn't like. And I'm, I kind of philosophically 
I get it, and I view it the same way. Now, I got to pivot here because this is the second biggest story of the day. The biggest story of the day is what's happening to Silicon Valley Bank. This is the second biggest story of the day. Saudi Arabia and Iran have decided to patch up their diplomatic relations. Trying to find here the second I sent it to Philip, and then I closed the browser of the Wall Street Journal article, which went in-depth. This is, this is good. Here's the headline. Saudi Arabia, Iran, restore relations in deal brokered by China. Accord marks diplomatic victory for Beijing in a region where U.S. has long dominated geopolitics. Y'all, we often hear from Democrats that Donald Trump ruined our standing in the world and Joe Biden restored it. I want to assure you if Joe Biden had restored our standing in the world, China would not have gotten Iran and Saudi Arabia to restore diplomatic relations and open embassies. Seven years, these countries have had no diplomatic dealings. The United States is working with Israel to strengthen a regional alliance against Iran and its nuclear program. Saudi Arabia and Iran have been at odds with each other. Saudi Arabia has been attacked by Houthi rebels out of Yemen. Their refineries have been attacked. Their oil production has been attacked. Uh, Their military bases have been attacked. Iran funded those rebels. When Donald Trump was president of the United States, the United States aggressively had Saudi Arabia's back when it came to dealing with the Houthi rebels. When Joe Biden became president, he scaled it back and stopped considering the Houthi rebels as some sort of terrorist group. That allowed an opening for Beijing. It allowed an opening for China. China was able to come in and rebuild ties between Saudi Arabia and Iran because the United States did not want to work with Saudi Arabia. We have done a very good job across the parties in this country to keep Saudi Arabia and Iran at odds. And you can, some of you say that, well, this is a terrible thing. And actually, no, it's a very good thing. Saudi Arabia and Iran together as allies would be a very destabilizing thing for our national security in the Middle East because it would force other Middle Eastern companies or countries to pick sides. We have a lot of American companies in those countries. And if they picked Iran's side, our companies would have to pack up and leave because of embargo rules and the like. Not only that, they would be terror targets. We have behind the scenes privately been trying to build relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia. It is notable that American diplomats today are being very dismissive of what China did. The American diplomats behind the scenes are basically saying it it, it doesn't really matter. Israeli officials are saying the same thing. Barack Ravid is a diplomatic correspondent at Walla News and Axios' Middle East correspondent. Uh, Let me read you this Twitter thread. A senior Israeli official said in a briefing with reporters who traveled with Prime Minister Netanyahu to Rome that the agreement between Saudi Arabia and Iran is a result of weakness towards Iran by the United States, the West, and the previous Israeli government. 
The senior official said that the Saudis started the talks with Iran in 2021 when they felt the U.S. was rushing for a new nuclear deal with Iran. This was when they also went to China. There was a feeling of U.S. and Israeli weakness, and this is why the Saudis started looking for new avenues. It was clear this was going to happen. The senior official said he's not concerned that the new Saudi-Iranian agreement will hamper the efforts to achieve Saudi-Israeli normalization. He said that what matters is what's happening under the surface, not the diplomatic agreements. The U.S. and Israeli positions matter more than the agreement between Saudi Arabia and Iran. The Western position towards Iran starts to change, but it still hasn't changed enough. The reality here is the Biden administration is provoking a realignment in the Middle East against our interests towards China's interests. You will notice how quiet Democrats have been about this today. For the last four years, Democrats have blasted the Trump administration for showing weakness on the planet, weakness in the world, weakness in diplomatic relations, weakness in our alliances, and bad faith when it comes to dealing with Europe. And now the Iranians and the Saudis have restored diplomatic relations thanks to the Chinese. The Saudis are thinking of beginning to use Chinese currency for oil trading, something that has never happened before. The Chinese are are moving into the Middle East and the Saudis are thinking of allowing them port access, something they haven't allowed before. We're seeing a world realigning against us, and it's not because of Donald Trump. It's because of Joe Biden. And the Democrats, who insisted on intellectual honesty when Donald Trump was president, refused to honestly deal with what's going on here. Joe Biden is weak in foreign policy. By the way, historically, Joe Biden has always been weak in foreign policy. Robert Gates who was Barack Obama and George W. Bush's defense secretary, said Joe Biden has been wrong about every foreign policy event for 50 years. Barack Obama said of his vice president, never underestimate Joe Biden's ability to F things up. Except he didn't say F. We're watching Joe Biden F up the Middle East. This is not a good thing. It shows a deep unseriousness on the part of this administration. Joe Biden, I have learned recently, is a big, huge fan of Jimmy Carter, which explains a lot. One of the notable things Jimmy Carter did in his foreign policy was to uh, prioritize human rights. Now, Joe Biden, of course, is not doing that in large part because he would have to deal with China and he doesn't want to. But Joe Biden has internalized that push from Jimmy Carter and he's really angry with the Saudis for the Jamal Khashoggi killing. Khashoggi was not a good actor. The media has lionized him because he wrote for the Washington Post, but he wasn't a great dude. He was killed by the Saudis. That's not in dispute. But Joe Biden used that as a as a predicate for ruining our relationship with Saudi Arabia, for attacking Mohammed bin Saud. Very famously, when Joe Biden was president, he refused to take a call from Mohammed bin Saud, the the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. According to Biden administration officials, Joe Biden said, given his stature as president, he should take no call from anyone less than the emir himself. 
Joe Biden's administration is screwing up our foreign and national security policies. It is a very big deal. For perspective, having grown up over there, I know how big a deal it is. When I grew up in Dubai, the Iranian-backed Hezbollah tried to blow up my school, very literally tried to kill me. There was a time when I went to school where I just stopped taking lunch to school because we had security guards at the gates of our school because of the Iranians. They would open our lunch bags and pull out our sandwiches and separate the pieces of bread to see what was in them. They didn't wear gloves. It was gross. Our school put in a Hardee's. We didn't have McDonald's or Burger King in Dubai. We had a Hardee's. And they put in a Hardee's. That was their, so many kids didn't want to bring their lunches to school. We lived down the street from the Iranian hospital. During the Iran-Iraq war, I remember seeing all the, the, the patients in the streets trying to get blood and whatnot, people in stretchers. I remember one day in ninth grade, our school shook. There had been an explosion. It was the Iranians blowing up the oil rigs, one of which my dad was on. He had to evacuate. It was the U.S. Navy who protected his oil rig. He had to flee and then go back in the middle of the night with a skeleton crew to get it reopened to get the oil pumping again. The Iranians are bad actors. And over the past seven years, the United States was able to get Saudi Arabia to sever diplomatic ties and be all in with us in the Middle East. The Trump administration was able to get them to at least recognize Israel on a slow walk towards peace with Israel. When I was a kid, if you opened the Encyclopedia Britannica and you tried to find Israel in it, the pages had been cut out. You couldn't make a phone call to Israel. Israel did not exist as far as the Middle Eastern Muslim countries were concerned. Remember the first time I saw an Israeli flag? In our textbooks, they were all blacked out or torn out. I was in Greece on a class trip and a teacher pointed out a star, a flag with a blue star and blue bars on white background and asked if it's what we knew what it was. None of us knew. Smart kids, none of us had ever seen it. We weren't allowed to. And the Trump administration was able to get peace in the Middle East. You can now make a call from Dubai to Israel. You couldn't when I was a kid. You can fly nonstop from Dubai to Tel Aviv. You couldn't when I was a kid. This is a recent phenomenon. In the last couple of years, this has happened. But the Biden administration decided to reprioritize trying to deal with Iran. And in doing so, they provided aid and comfort to Iran and financial services to Iran. And Iran was going to build a nuclear weapon even as the Biden administration said no. And the Chinese have been able to use that leverage to get the Saudis to collaborate and cooperate with the Iranians. And that's going to further 
undermine our position in the Middle East and in the world. The United States has also been the world's reserve currency. The Saudis allowing people to start purchasing oil using the Chinese currency instead of ours destabilizes us as the world's reserve currency. All of these things Joe Biden is doing that the left praises him for actually undermine our national security and undermine our leverage on the world stage. It puts us in a worse position. It destabilizes our position at the top of the pack in the world and advances authoritarian regimes globally, makes them stronger, makes them work together more collaboratively, and it puts you and me in a more dangerous position. This is what the Biden administration is doing around the world. And the left, which blasted Donald Trump for years for what he was doing, is saying nothing. Saying nothing. How many Americans are going to die because Joe Biden has allowed China and Iran to rearrange the structure of the world? Probably too many. All right, now we got to move on to other things. That's just depressing. Uh, Jim, where are we at? Ah, Eden Pure. Yes, the Eden Pure Thunderstorm. Okay, so you can get three of them for less than $200 by going to EdenPureDeals.com and you put Eric in as your discount. You used to put in Eric 3. Now you just put in Eric, E-R-I-C-K. You get three Eden Pure Thunderstorms. What are they? They are air purifiers. They're filterless. You just wipe them out on occasion. They take care of the dust and the pollen and the mold and my gosh, the pollen around here. Thankfully, it's raining today. Where they really shine, though, is in wiping out odors. Smoke odors, pet odors, litter box odors cooking odors. You don't have to cover them up with air spray or essential oils. Just wipe them out. You got a car that smells smoky, a hotel room that smells musty, a pet whose litter box stinks. You just fire up the Eden Pure Thunderstorm and it wipes out those odors. You get three of them for less than $200. You're saving $200 and you get free shipping. All you have to do is go to EdenPureDeals.com Eden like the Garden of Eden, pure is the driven snow. EdenPureDeals.com. And on the front page of the site, put in my first name, Eric. Welcome, it's Eric Erickson here. Please subscribe to the email text data to 33777 so you can stay up on all the latest, including all the links about the Silicon Valley Bank. Let me squeeze in a phone call here for the end of the hour. Tiffany, thanks for waiting. Welcome to the show. Hi, Eric. Hi. Um. So I have a question about how school choice in the state of Georgia specifically would affect homeschoolers. Uh Um, We have always been homeschoolers for the last 20 plus years. We've classically educated our kids at home. And I have some concerns about school choice um, making homeschoolers lose some of their freedom and autonomy. I know in some of the states where school choice has passed and it has included homeschoolers, like Michigan, for instance, the homeschool co-ops that have accepted funds from the school choice programs have done well, but the homeschool co-ops who have not are, are struggling and oftentimes closing. And I just think it's a slippery slope because here in the state of Georgia, we have so much free homeschoolers. Right. I, I wouldn't want to give that up just to get some of that yeah, tax money know, refunded to me. That's one of the 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 wild trade offs here, and, and the approach I think that they're considering in Georgia is 
you will be able to deduct expenses for homeschooling, the books and supplies and stuff like that that you get. But uh, in a lot of states, yes, if a homeschool co-op decides to take state funds, then the states also get to impose a level of school testing regulation and things like that. And a lot of homeschool co-ops don't. Um, and it, it puts some at an advantage and, and others not, uh, essentially forcing these homeschool co-ops to compete against each other. But I, I, I gotta say, I'm, I'm really sympathetic to the concerns, but also is it, shouldn't we still do this and let those chips fall if we're going to be benefiting other kids? It, it's, I, we gotta be careful about the state wanting to regulate homeschool kids. And let's not say it can't happen here because the state came close to electing Stacey Abrams in 2018. Um, we got to protect our homeschoolers, but also can we benefit other kids through school choice? 